There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you do for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. So happy you can join us. It's been an action-packed time in the National Football League. Kind of a weird time. You know, I don't know that I've ever seen a season where the 13th seed in the AFC is on the verge of the playoffs. It's just weird. Just totally, totally weird. But anyway, I'm happy to be joined this week uh, by my friend Paul Burmeister from NBC Sports. We're going to talk a lot about what's going on around the NFL. And then later on in the show, I'm going to be joined. I wanted to have a a little conversation this week with somebody who works for Pro Football Focus, a friend of mine named Eric Eager, who is one of the people who educates me so much about some of the deep impact of some of the stats, some of the analytics that they do. And has really helped me an awful lot with my understanding of modern football. There's a few things I want to get to with Eric Eager. Hope you enjoy that conversation. But first, Paul, what a wacky Monday night game. What did you think? I thought it was awesome, Peter. I really enjoyed it. I think all of us, no matter who we pull for, we appreciate something that just looks a lot different than we're used to. So, Last night's game didn't have the excitement in the big play potential that maybe some of us are attracted to that we want to see in a primetime game. But if you're into a meaningful game that has different elements than you're used to seeing, like I wish that game was eight quarters last night. I'm normally attracted to great quarterback play, but I just love the strategy and how unique that game was and the way it played out. I thought it was wonderful. I would agree. I, I kept looking at the clock especially in the first half until like the last two minutes of the first half, I said, they're going to play this half in about an hour and five minutes, which is unheard of. And it just never, ever happens. But I was so fascinated by each coach and, and look, I was reminded of a couple of things watching this game, Paul. One was, do you remember in the Super Bowl, the New England-Seattle Super Bowl, when with about 70 seconds to go, the Patriots had, you know, basically had the, or maybe like a minute and a half to go. Uh, The Seahawks were down right at the goal line, and they had to make a decision on what to call. And Belichick would not call a timeout. And he just kept watching the field. 
<clears throat> and he was, you know, here he was. He was just like, well, you know, it looked like on the sidelines, it was a preseason game in August. He just, you know, totally, totally cool. Whereas on the other sideline, you looked over at Seattle as, what are we doing? What do you want to do here? Do we want to take a timeout? Why aren't they taking a timeout? All this stuff. And so that's what it reminded me of last night. Other than a couple of times when Belichick got really ticked off at the officials, he was as cool as a cucumber coaching this game. That was one thing. And the second thing I was reminded of, Paul, a long time ago, 17 years ago, Sports Illustrated sent me to do sort of at the time, because Belichick wasn't Belichick, the six-time Super Bowl winning coach or whatever it is. And so he, he, he hadn't, the legend hadn't gone nuts. It was after a second Super Bowl. And I get assigned by Sports Illustrated to write the definitive Belichick profile. And I tell him I'm doing it and I go up and visit him and I talk to him and everything. And I said, hey, can I go over to your house and see your football library? Because reading was always big to Bill. And uh, he said, ah, a little uncomfortable with that. So I was up there for a couple of days and just before I was gonna leave, he just said to me, he said, hey, get in your car and follow me. And I was hoping that he had changed his mind and he was gonna let me go. So we did. I went over to his house, walked in and in sort of a brightly lit library kind of office, you know, with beautiful bookshelves. Um, he had all of his football collection, which he is now given uh, to uh, the Naval Academy. And if you wanna see his football library, you can. You can just walk in and take a look at all the volumes at the Naval Academy. It's open, you can actually go do this. But that day, I remember looking at all the books, you know, the old books by Grantland Rice and about Newt Rockney and the origins of football and all this, going up through time to, you know, biographies of all famous players. There was one book in that bookshelf that I kept thinking to myself, why is this here? It was called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And I said, Bill, The Art of War, what can you learn about football from that? And he sort of shrugged and he said, ah, you know, don't go to war when the ground is muddy. And at the time, I basically dismissed it. He was just chuckling about it. But I really thought about it last night for this reason. Bill Belichick understands that what happens in football sometimes is dictated by things outside of your control. And in an adverse weather game, in a horrible weather game, no one calls you before the game and says, oh, by the way, the weather is horrendous. So A, you don't have to play today. We're going to postpone the game. Or B, ah, you know, we'll forgive you if you take a mulligan and you lose this game. Don't worry about it. Counts the same as all the other games. Shouldn't you figure out the best way to do it? So last night in this game, don't go to war when the ground is muddy. I kept thinking, Bill Belichick has thought about every little plan in this game. And even if Damian Harris hadn't run for that long touchdown, 
I don't think he would have played the game much differently at all because he would have said, I like my field goal kicker a lot. And I am going to just simply not play. To, I'm going to play to not make mistakes. And that's exactly what he did. Neither team, it was weird. <clears throat> Neither team was, you know, handing the ball to the other team very much. It wasn't, it wasn't that sloppy a game. It just was a strange game, but I just think Belichick handled the weather in that game about as well as a coach could. I think it's interesting, Peter, that you bring up the fact that you, you kind of go back anecdotally to that Super Bowl in Phoenix against the Seahawks at the end. And what you're really talking about there is, is details and the attention to details as it pertained to what mattered in the game. Let's go back the last 20 years and pick out any game you'd like, you know, whether it's that Super Bowl win, whether it's what happened last night, no matter who's at quarterback, how many times has Bill Belichick been coaching the Patriots and they won the game and you look back and you say, well, that was an otherwise extremely even game. It came down to one or two details and you can pick out the details that mattered the most. And last night, what made it fun was the extreme wind and how each team had to change and adapt to it. But once you get past that spectacle part of it and get down to the details that mattered for the Patriots this time, you're talking about a made field goal and a missed field goal. You can stop right there. I mean, that's the yeah. difference in the game right there. If you want to add another layer to it, a converted two-point conversion. That's a minute detail that went the Patriots' way as well. And if you want to go plus one, the Patriots defensive backs, I think, made three plays on the ball, three terrific plays on the ball on key third and fourth downs in the second half. That's it. Talk about the wins. Talk about Mac Jones and Josh Allen. Those three little details that the Patriots came through on last night, that's why they won. And it's just one more volume to that giant book. You, you brought up all of Bill's books, but one more, one more volume, one more chapter to this. We had a couple more details sorted out than you did. And that's why we won the close game. So, Paul, I know what, there's one thing I want to ask you. As someone, you have been in the arena. You were a Big Ten quarterback at Iowa. And I wonder, for people who are just watching that game on television last night, and <clears throat> I was thinking of, here's Mac Jones. It's a kid from Jacksonville. He played at Alabama. There's a good chance never in his life has he played in an environment like last night. Um, I mean, that's probably, those are probably the harshest conditions he ever played in. Take me into the mind of a quarterback playing in a game like that and look back at your past and tell me if you ever played in a game that was absolutely horrendous conditions. How'd you do? How'd you cope? Well, playing in the Big Ten, I mean, once we got to November, and a lot of times before that, you're going to have the cold, wet, windy game. So I'm used to playing in the 15 to 20 mile per hour wind range. And let's start there. The, the wind is really the only problem for a quarterback. You can kind of deal with the wet ball. Cold isn't that big of a deal. Snow doesn't bother you at all. But once that wind gets above 15 miles per hour, your ball is going to be affected. And once you get above 20, and I guess it was whipping up around 40 or 50 last night, it is nearly impossible to make the ball go where you want it to go. Uh, we had a number of games. I can remember at Iowa State at Northwestern where we eliminated the toss sweep 
because it was that windy wow. and we just had to turn and hand it off. Um, we won games where I, I think I was six for eight at Iowa State one year because it was so windy we couldn't throw. Um, but thinking about the wind, it, it just it made me so impressed with Josh Allen last night, Peter, because we hear about arm strength a lot. We'll talk yeah. about it a lot in March and April about the draft. And most of the time, it's overrated. It wasn't last night. And the, the nuance that's added to that is being a spiral thrower matters. Most of the time, yeah. it's just aesthetic. It's like, oh, that's a great ball. Yeah. NFL films can zoom in on it, and it looks so But pretty. last night, you're right. It really it matters. matters. It really matters. When you can get that many RPMs on the ball, and it stays tight in that spiral, your chances of your decision of, like, I want the ball to go there. If you got a lot of RPMs, it's a tight spiral. There's a fighting chance you can get it there. If you're not a spiral thrower, if you're not a thrower that gets the ball to spin a lot, you have very little chance of getting the ball from point A to point B. And even though they lost last night, Josh Allen's command of the ball and what he could do with it in that wind, uh, to me, being a quarterback nerd, was one of the most impressive parts of that game last night. Okay, but I will make one, I'll make one nitpick on your point, and I agree. I was impressed. Josh Allen often looked like there was no wind at all out there. He's got a howitzer. You know, he's really, really an impressive player. But I will tell you this, the last throw he made in the game, you know, where he has basically two receivers to the left. I think he's got Cole Beasley in the slot and he's got Davis outside, right? And he basically either maybe it was a lack of communication or he underthrew the ball. I couldn't really tell whether, you know, who exactly he meant that ball to. It looked like it was to Davis on a deep in cut, okay, who was, I bet, four yards deep in the end zone. This is from the New England 18, you know, on fourth and 14. But I remember thinking to myself, and, and the uh, uh, Patriots kid, uh, Brian, knocked it away. And I remember thinking to myself, A, I, wish, I bet he wishes he had that back because he thought he put enough on it, but the wind must have knocked it down. Either that or, or, and I doubt this, but or Cole Beasley was supposed to turn out instead of turning in. And I don't know. You saw the play. What do you think happened? Yeah. I think Cole Beasley went the right way. I think it was, I mean, it was straight man coverage, which is what you want down there. There was no middle of the field safety help, at least not by call. And Cole was running the more shallow crossing route. And then yes. behind him, Davis ran the, the, the deeper in route. I think that was the combination they called on. I thought he had Beasley right away. I thought that might've been yes. the better call. Uh, I think you're right on. I think the wind held that ball up a little bit. Uh, what impressed me most on that play the kid, and I, I want to make sure I get his name right, Miles Bryant, he was yeah. covering Cole Beasley. And normally when, you, when you're when you covering someone straight man for man, you're just on that person. And if right. the, the ball goes somewhere else, hey, it went somewhere else. I got my man covered. And he had the exactly. wherewithal yeah. to, to come off of his man and bat it down. I think it would have been batted down anyway, but that was just such an instinctual play. I, I thought Lewis Riddick did a nice job last night of breaking it down to the moment right after and pointing out how great his instincts were. Uh, but we talked about the details uh, of Bill Belichick teams and the DBs. That was a high-level instinctual play that really stood out. 
Paul, let's let's wrap our conversation about this game with um, what this game means right now. Okay, so I'll give you my three points, and I want to hear whatever you think the meaning of this is. First meaning: Patriots now have taken hold of the AFC East, which obviously is a surprise. You know, I don't think anybody saw this coming at the start of the year, but they have taken hold now of the AFC East. They right now have a game and a half lead over Buffalo, which is in essence a two game lead because they've got the tiebreaker advantage. The other thing that they have is a huge edge in conference record uh, over every contender in the conference. And that's why they're seven and one right now in the conference. So right now the Patriots are the overall number one seed. Okay. And they're seven and one in conference. No other team in the AFC has less than three losses. So the Patriots are totally in control in that regard. But I, I think the one other thing that the way this schedule falls is so good for New England because this week, the only team that really has a chance against them in the AFC East, Buffalo, has got their toughest game down the stretch. Buffalo at Tampa Bay, where New England will be home on its couch, couches, watching the game. <laughs> and, and they're by, at the beginning of the year, they say, man, late by, that's not great. But in recent years, Late buys have really corresponded to uh, helping teams when they get ready to go in the playoffs. One other thing I would say, the Bills chafed at it after the game. And I don't know if you, I, I mean, I was a little nerdy after the game, but I stayed up and I watched the press conferences after the game. And they had uh, the Bills players, you could tell, were chafing at the, uh, the, the, the sort of public impression that they were weak against the run in this game. Because the statistics say 46 for 222, 4.8 a carry, that's horrible. And their point was, hey, one long run. But if you take away the one long run, they still gave up 45 carries for 3.5 a carry. And every time they knew it was coming. So what I would say for them scoffing that the Patriots didn't control this game on the ground. And I mean, they didn't chew them up and spit them out. I get it. But the Patriots exerted their will physically on the Buffalo Bills, I thought, even though a lot of times it wasn't pretty. Those are my takeaways. Give me yours. Back to that word you just mentioned, Peter, physically. And they won with physicality. And I'm a numbers guy. I think a lot of times numbers tell a wonderful story. This time it was an eye test. And the Buffalo players and coaches can say whatever they would like, that they could wrap this up however they want and justify that loss in their own minds. But th there, there came a point early where everybody in the stadium knew New England was just going to run the ball and that's it. They didn't pass once in the second and third quarter. I looked one time, Peter, I think they had 41 runs and one pass. So yeah. no matter what the numbers say, they got beat by a team that basically raised its hand halfway through the first quarter and said, just so everybody knows, all we're going to do is run the football tonight. Yeah. And yeah. they still 
couldn't beat them. Four point whatever yards per carry, whatever. Those first couple series in the second half, after they had the halftime to get together and talk about it, they picked up first down after first down a couple of those drives. So that, that was, to me, kind of a demoralizing loss because in any sport where there's physicality involved and you are clearly the more physical team over a main rival, that's, that's not your ordinary win. That's one that sticks around for a while. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a world record for the United States, unbelievable. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance. The Paris Olympics, this summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. The Premier League is built on hope. The hope of discovering a new star. It doesn't take long. The hope of rewriting history. And the hope of continuing a dynasty. Unstoppable week after week. This is the Premier League on NBC, USA and Peacock. Paul, I want to talk a little bit today in the podcast this week about the ridiculous parody that we're seeing in the NFL right now. And I'll give people a little clue about my, uh, about my very near future, okay? I am going to cover the Cincinnati-San Francisco game this week in Cincinnati. Everybody would say, well, geez, why aren't there better games this weekend? There probably are better matchups this weekend. I'll tell you why I'm covering this game. Because the Bengals and the 49ers are both perfect illustrations of what the NFL is this year. Look what the Bengals were for two weeks uh, or three weeks before they played the Chargers on Sunday. They were a no-doubt playoff team. And you watch them and you say, these guys are going to be a tough out for somebody in January. This is going to be a tough game for somebody. And then before you even look up on Sunday at home, they're down 24 to nothing to the Chargers. And on the other hand, the 49ers, they come out, they play, they win three in a row. They look fantastic. And then they go to Seattle and they get beat by a team that had been horrible, you know, for most of the year. So, but that's what this league is this year. Okay. Just like, you know, you can't figure out what's going to happen. I'm not going to throw these teams away because they had one game where they didn't play that well. And, and Paul, the other part of it is, if you look at the playoff standings right now, San Francisco is the seventh seed 
in the NFC right now at six and six. Cincinnati is the seventh seed in the AFC at seven and five. So up, down, in, out, whatever, both of these teams have their fate in their hands. And so I just, I want to ask you about why you believe or why, it, it, what you think is the reason for all of these teams being so close this year versus say past years, when by approaching the middle of December, we are getting a lot of space and a lot of gaps between the teams. Not so this year. Like, like so many fans, just like you, Peter, I've, I've sat and thought about this one quite a bit as the season has gone along because uh, it's clear this is a major part of the league this year. And those two teams you're covering this weekend, the Bengals and the 49ers, perfect snapshots of what's going on. It's like, how many times this year have we said, okay, the 49ers, the Bengals, they're this. And then three weeks later, there's something different. Then a week later, there's something different. And there are so many teams like that. I think that this addition of one more regular season game, uh, the addition of an extra playoff team, somewhere in there, the mindset, the sense of urgency, the way teams feel about sprinting in the middle to the end of the regular season has changed. It's yeah. almost accepted. And I, I don't know if you or I could get any of the coaches or players to admit this, but I think that their feeling about this now longer regular season has changed and kind of like the end of an NBA game or a big chunk of NBA games toward the end of the season. It's, it's, I don't want to say, okay, but it's reality. The teams are going to have a bad stretch. And I feel like they've accepted that uh, players are more likely to sit out with a little injury. Uh, teams are more likely to accept the fact that we've had a stretch of quarters or a couple games that haven't gone our way but we can piece it back together by the end of the season. Uh, I, I, I'm working on being more clear with the details of verbalizing that, but that's, that's kind of my general thought that I, I do feel like the, the makeup of the team's mentality has changed a little bit with another game, with another team in the playoffs. It just, it feels different in the middle to the back third of the regular season. You know, I'm going to give you one other little pet theory of mine. Okay. And that is, I think some of the coaches, particularly some of the younger coaches this year are coaching a little bit differently. I wrote about it in my column on Monday, Football Morning in America. And I wrote about Brandon Staley of the Los Angeles Chargers, who is taking fourth down right now and being uber aggressive on fourth down. And, and I list all the reasons why. But one of the things that he said to me during the course of our, our, of our exchange about it is that, look, you know, I, and I'm going to read you his quote. What I've learned and come to accept and embrace is, I don't care how we lose. I don't care about the optics of it. But being conservative just preserves stats and lets you feel that you're closer than you really are. You know, if, if we lose because of play calls I made that are grounded in, uh, in study and in facts, I'm fine with that. And because more and more teams are doing that, in, in my opinion, you're almost saying that, okay, Los Angeles Chargers, let's predict how you're gonna do. But it's hard to predict 
how they're going to do because they're going to play the game a little bit different than teams have played traditionally. What, what's the difference you're saying? A lot of times they're adding fourth down to their equation instead of punting anytime you're in minus territory, your own territory, and it's fourth down. They don't always do that. I, I, I had an illustration of, you know, earlier in this year when on fourth and two from their own 28-yard line in a game they were down by two touchdowns in the first half, he went for it. I, I, I don't, I, and I remember that week thinking, okay, it's, it's now gone insane. This girl's gone wild. You know, I mean, I just, it's just absolutely crazy. But his explanation is very good. And, and I guess that I would say, I look at a lot of these coaches right now and how they're coaching, starting with Doug Peterson a few years ago in Philadelphia. But you've got him, you've got Zach Taylor, uh, you've definitely got Frank Reich, who's a big disciple of it. Um, you've got Kevin Stefanski in Cleveland. You've got a lot of coaches where their team is going to be a little bit different anyway, because you're not positive how they're going to be playing. I don't know. That's one theory I've got. And with all of that, Peter, uh, thinking about how how, um, how much parity there is in the league right now. I will say, after thinking about this quite a bit the last 24 hours, pick out your, your favorite two or three teams in either conference. I do think there is a big difference between the top two or three and the next 10 that have a chance of getting in. So the decent teams, there are a bunch of those. There's more to the, to the pretty good middle teams than we've ever seen. But I, if you do this exercise at home, pick your favorite couple there is a pretty good difference between the very best teams and then the double digit number of teams in either conference chasing a playoff spot. Paul, we'll end with uh, a question that's on the minds of a lot of football fans. And I think a lot of people in the organization in Tampa, should the Bucks cut Antonio Brown for misleading them uh, on his vaccination status? A year ago, as I wrote this week, uh, Bruce Arians told me uh, basically one mistake and he's gone. And, and as I wrote this week, it isn't just one mistake. It's falsifying, using a fake vaccination card, choosing to be around the team with all of uh, the, the, the health issues with Bruce Arians, who's a cancer survivor, Tom Moore, the offensive assistant who's around Antonio Brown a lot. He's 82 years old. Um, and you sort of look at all this and you say, you know, he's done more than one thing wrong. But, you know, Paul, as you well know, a lot of times in football, you know, the guy who is a really, really good player is going to get more chances than the guy who's on the practice squad. What's, what's your thought about what the Bucs should do right now? Well, it feels like you, you could certainly lean on the fact that he's, he's received a you know, fairly significant punishment. I mean, he's out for three games. It's not like he got suspended for a half or one game. So three games, I mean, you feel that. And I also believe it, it's without pay. Um, now, here's where, the, here's where the personal feelings come in. Um, I would like to see him released. I mean, I am on the side, like I'm, I'm tired of all this and I would like to see 
the players vaccinated. I would like to see this, this issue go away. And it wouldn't bother me one bit if they decided after this three-week suspension or at any point during it, they said, you know what, considering that you came in with a couple of strikes, considering where we're trying to go with this policy and where we want the players in the league to end up soon uh, with all of this in this policy, we're going to let you go. I would support that. Uh, it doesn't feel like they're going there. I think that yeah. they're going to stop at the three games and say, he's he served his time. He's done his punishment. Uh, but the way I feel about this entire issue certainly bleeds in here that I I would support it if they let him go. I totally agree with you. I think it's a very slippery slope, especially because 17-week regular season, even though they do have good depth at the receiver position, if you're watching uh, this past weekend, you saw Chris Godwin limp off at one point. And, and look, you know, it is a tough, tough job being a receiver in the NFL. And making it through a season unscathed is very, very hard. I just have a feeling at the end of the day, that's going to win the day for Tampa. But again, we'll see. I just, I think it's fascinating how the specter of the real world has really come into the NFL in so many ways. And this year, seriously, it could really impact who wins the Super Bowl. If Antonio Brown is not on this team, that is going to have an impact on who wins this Super Bowl. I don't care what anybody says. So be very, very interesting to watch uh, down the stretch. Paul, thanks so much. Uh, appreciate you uh, lending your wisdom to the show this week. Um, look forward to uh, some very interesting shows down the stretch of this season because I have no idea what's going to happen. When the... <laughs> When the fifth seed in the AFC has seven wins and the 12th seed, or I'm sorry, and the 13th seed in the AFC has six wins, I, I, I know that it's going to be uh, a little bit topsy-turvy the rest of the way, but thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. Let's transition now to my conversation with Eric Eager of Pro Football Focus. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. <laughs> oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. At the theater, more than the movies come to life. Movie lovers march in and skip the line with digital tickets to the latest movies on the free Fandango app. Ready to grab some snacks. Pick me! And head to the best seats in the house for a night of romance, terror, and quality family screen time. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. The Premier League is built on hope. The hope of discovering a new star. It doesn't take long, but Darwin Nunez to make an impression. The hope of rewriting history. Saka leaves his calling card. And the hope 
of continuing a dynasty. Unstoppable week after week. This is the Premier League on NBC, USA and Peacock. Back on the podcast, so happy to be joined by Pro Football Focus, PFF Vice President of Research and Development, Eric Eager. Eric, before we start on football, I want you to tell me your very strange path to join oh. Pro Football Focus. Where were you and how did you get to Cincinnati, Ohio, home of the PFF empire? Yeah, I was a, a math, college math professor for six years. Um, I taught, you know, all kinds of uh, statistics, differential equations, uh, linear Where? algebra. University of Wisconsin Lacrosse, which is the uh, alma mater of Green Bay Packers general manager Brian Gutekunst, um, and I think a few other players. I, I I believe can't remember which NFL team had their training camp there until they all sort of started to have them the locally. The Saints. There you go. Yeah. So. Uh, a very fun place to live. And then I, I found myself, you know, this sounds silly, but like a little bit bored. And I started working on football and then, uh, you know, um, you know, one comes after the other and, and, uh, and here we are. Yeah. Great. Um, I am sort of fascinated by PFF because uh, my brother uh, who lived in England at the time uh, was a coworker of Neil Hornsby's wife. And he would always tell me, hey, I, I work with a woman whose, whose husband is just this absolute, total, all-in NFL fan who spends all of his time watching these games and dissecting everything. And, and he, he tells me sometimes, oh, Peter, Peter is wrong about this player or that player. And, and my brother used to say, I really think he's crazy, but he's really into it. You ought to talk to him one time. And when I talked to him, I found out he's not crazy. He's watching every snap of these games and watching how every player plays. And he was really ahead of his time. Uh, and I think PFF is the coolest thing. I, I think over the years, PFF has really gotten uh, beat up by some people who claim to, and in many cases do, really know football. But I don't think PFF ever says that when we look at every play that a right tackle plays, that we know exactly what his assignment is. But we can see if he gets beat around the corner and he's flailing at some guy and misses him, that's his fault. Or we can see when a guy stones TJ Watt, give him credit for that. And I think over the years, I think it's been borne out. Uh, and I first think of Evan Mathis, the guard who I think is the first guy who really made a lot of money because of PFF. You know, he ended up getting a good contract from Denver, I think in 2015, uh, in part because of his PFF rating. But anyway, I, I just, I think it's a fascinating way to look at the game, to separate every play into 22 bits and to look at all 22 players and how they did on that play. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Neil certainly, uh, you know, set, set the tone and sets the tone um, for, you know, what it's like to be obsessed about the game. And, um, you know, and I think 
you know, all of us are sort of that way. And, and I know you're that way, Peter, and it, it's, it's, it's borne out in the work that everybody does in the industry. And I agree. I think like we just come at it from a different perspective. I think, uh, you know, I, I probably, I think I speak for everybody at PFF when I say that we have a ton of respect for people within the league, for people in media who look at it differently. Um, you know, ultimately, though, we've all begun to work together more. And so the, I think the reasonable criticism that we don't know everybody's assignment, I think that that has gone away somewhat over the years um, because of all, I mean, we're clients with all 32 NFL teams. So right. we, we can certainly ask the question when, when things come up. Um, and yeah, things have, you know, I think the way that we talk about football has changed. And I, and I think that we, you know, I think that the media, you know, and, and us, and, and we've all become smarter and we've all become smarter in our own way. And, and I think hopefully we, we deserve some credit for that. Can I ask you, I want to ask you three questions about game situations and what I see right now. I, I want to ask you about the Monday night game this week. Uh, where the Patriots ran it 46 times, they passed it three times. And when I'm watching this game, I was reminded of, of an old Bill Parcells team in the 80s when after one of these games, and I forget who it was against, um, he admitted they only had four run plays, period. That's all mm -hmm. they had in their playbook. He said, we're such an easy team to both play for and to play against. We show you exactly what's coming. And I think last night, you know, as, as we record this on Tuesday, I think last night, Bill Belichick essentially said the same thing. We're not disguising anything. We're not hiding anything. We are going to play a land battle. That's all this game is. It's not going to be who's got, you know, the best trick play or, or whether Josh McDaniels has, has anything up his sleeve. In fact, Belichick said something really cool on, on the radio on Tuesday morning in Boston, and that is that, you know, what are the advantages that you see right now? Game and a half lead on Buffalo coming into the bye week. Patriots have a huge edge right now. But he said they have not seen anything in our passing game with Mac Jones. We didn't show him anything that we thought would work against them. We practiced it, but it was futile, you know, in a game like mm -hmm. that. So, I, you know, I'm curious, what did you think of the game? What did you think of the strategy? Well, I think the strategy was fairly smart given the situation, right? I, you don't have, you know, yeah, I don't think Mac Jones has got a weak arm, but you don't have a guy with the arm uh, of Josh Allen. Um, and, your, the, the strategy thing makes sense when, when you're looking at it. I, I sort of think about this too when I look at Sunday night's game. Everybody's like, oh, Kansas City's kind of sputtering offensively. And it's like, well, when your defense is playing that well and you know you can beat Denver playing a, a three out of 10 game on offense, you know, you just kind of, you know, you're not playing the good plays. And I think when New England kind of did that last night, they got a little lucky, obviously, with, you know, Diggs dropping the touchdown pass, you know, the field goal yeah. miss on the penultimate drive meant that the, the, the Bills couldn't kick a field goal on their last drive. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, the thing of it, and there was an article that I wrote on PFF.com last week that looked at the difference between perfectly blocked run plays and, and run plays with one negative block or more. And basically the difference, if you add it up, is about half a point difference. And so when, when I hear somebody like Belichick say, we only have like four or five run plays, 
it's music to my ears a little bit because as somebody who played, you know, I played through college, I was a tight end. I, I saw the look on my face on the, on the coach's face when everything was blocked up perfectly, right? Those plays are the best plays in football. The problem is it's really hard to get five or six or seven, depending upon what your front looks like blocks to all work at once. And I think it makes it easier when you have fewer run plays to execute, right? It's just about execution. And I think last night, you know, it was parts, the, the New England Patriots just executed better. And then it's part the fact that, and this is why Belichick is who he is and why he's the best. The Bills have been engineering their defense for almost a year and a half now to beat the Chiefs. And that's why you've seen them struggle with teams like Indianapolis and teams like New England, because they are not built to stop an offense like that. And what we got last night was the true extreme uh, of, you know, a team being forced to run the ball all the time and a team being forced to stop the run all the time. And, and, you know, even though the Patriots only scored 14 points, um, you know, it was, it, it ended up being enough to win. I want to ask you whether this year in the NFL feels different to you. Um, and I don't just ask that because the 13 seed in the AFC as of this morning has six wins and the fifth seed in the AFC has seven. So it's going to be a ridiculous rollicking last month of the season. But I ask because of something I wrote about this week in my column, and that is teams almost newfound pension of going forward more liberally on fourth down, particularly in minus territory, in their own territory. How much do you think over the last few years the game has changed and why do you think it has? Well, I, I think it just takes, and they have, they've, they've gone for fourth downs a lot more. Um, I think that it just took a few coaches to go against the trend and to have success, right? Because we see this in all walks of life. If you're in a rarefied air, if you're one of 32 people who have an elite job and you want to keep it for long, the longest time, right? So like one example I have, and this is a person who's sort of connected to the Evan Mathis story, but also the PFF story. But Chip Kelly went, what was it, 20 and 12 in his first two years in, in Philly with Nick Foles and Mark Sanchez as his quarterbacks. And the moment... He, he started, what, six and nine in 2014 and he was or 15 and he was fired, right? He didn't even get, like, he had a winning record as a coach and he got swept out right away because he thought differently than everybody else. And so, you know, here's a person who had, I, I thought, very good ideas who played, was a little bit different. And the moment he messed up, he was kind of, he was removed from Philadelphia and then subsequently San Francisco. It's, it's more advantageous for the truly rarefied people in any field to fail slowly and with the pack right and there's no to me fourth down decisions are such where let's say you're down so I, I think of that that first chargers game against the ravens where they went for and missed two fourth downs in their own end and they lose by 28 right like to me it takes a coach saying look if we're going to lose this game I don't care if we lose by 28 or we lose by seven. Right. It's a loss is a loss. And I think that more coaches have made that behavior acceptable. And so they're doing the right thing. They're, they're, they're failing quickly 
or they're succeeding. And we saw, you know, with, with uh, the Chargers, they've had as many games where the fourth down decisions they've gone for have helped them win games that they were underdogs in, namely Kansas City on the road in week three. Um, and, and so I think, it, I think it took a Doug Peterson. I think it took a, you know, I think it took Bill Belichick in 09 against the Colts. I think it takes, um, you know, these, these coaches to be like, it's okay to do this. This is acceptable behavior now. And if you lose, you can write it off to the rest of the league. Right. Whereas before, if you punted in those situations and it was the bad decision, you could write it off to the rest of the league. The thing that I like about this approach is that when you think about how logical it is to go for it on fourth and two in your own territory early in the second quarter of a game that you're down 14 points in, in a game in which the opposition, meaning Cleveland, I'm talking the Chargers, just went 75 yards in five plays. Your defense is gassed. Your defense is confused. Um, putting them back on the field immediately is probably an invitation to disaster. So even if you don't make the fourth and two in your own territory and give the Browns a short field, I absolutely see 100% why a coach would do something like that. Yeah, it's borne out in the numbers, as you said, because like the thing is, is being down, as you said, being down 14 means you're probably the worst of the two teams. Right. And so you'd rather take and, and this is similar. We'll talk about, I think, the Baltimore uh, Pittsburgh decision to go for two. But it's like you'd rather play one play against a team that's better than you than play a bunch of them. Right. And, and kicking the ball back to the Browns in the case of the Chargers in whatever week that was that that's essentially what they're choosing to do. And if you're down by 14, like I said, you're probably the worst of the two teams. And so you end up playing just a better numbers game. I'd rather play one hand of blackjack if I'm not counting cards than a hundred. Cause I know the casino has the edge over me in that. And, and, and like, that's how, that's how, that's how we sort of think. Right. And, and old coaching would just sit at the table and lose the 1% an hour. You know, I find myself often thinking about what's new in football. And one of the things now that I look at that's new is the ability of every coach and most coaches now to treat game plans the way Belichick has treated them for years, which is that every game plan is a snowflake. And, and I ask this question broadly, okay? Do you find that when you're looking at the 32 teams, do you find that there are fewer times when you say, man, I'm shocked. Uh, you know, Mike McCarthy did this in Dallas. I didn't expect him to, to run that much or, or I'm shocked at this. Do you think coaches in terms of their game plans are a little harder to read right now? I think so. And I think that the league is also just, and this is actually something I measure on a weekly basis, but I, I think that the league um, you know, there are just more unique schemes, right? Like one week you're taking on McVay, Shanahan, the other week you're taking on like a Kubiak like offense. Um, you know, I think the, to me, I think that that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the thing, right? Like where you have just a, a, a group of the schemes are so different, right? And then playing off of them, you know, and, and we're also seeing, I think, just a, a, a really good, um, you know, collection of, I think, teams that are trying to beat these super teams sort of, you know, 
being more creative and being more willing to sort of fail again to the point that you're saying where that's why you're getting so many upsets in the NFL. That's why you get Denver versus Dallas uh, out of Dallas's bye. Um, that's why you get Jacksonville. And I, you know, all this stuff is noisy, but that's why you get some of this. And it's also why, in my opinion, you're seeing execution not quite as good in the NFL, right? Like you're getting, um, you're getting essentially like some teams just have off weeks and, and they lose to teams they shouldn't lose to. I think that's because teams don't necessarily, and I, I don't mean this in a negative sense, but they have less of an identity, right? When, when your game plan is like every single week different, the players have to adjust to that. And, and we've seen with the new CBA with practice times and all that kind of COVID and all this stuff, like it's just hard to accomplish. So it, does, it makes the league more unpredictable, which I think most people think is fun. But when, if you're a fan of a team like Buffalo or Kansas City or Tennessee or Dallas or Green Bay, like that's how you see the stinkers. It's not the stinkers right. because necessarily the physical nature of the team is better, but it's because the team has to sort of run out a new script every time they play. I'll end with this. Who's the best player in the NFL who no one knows is a great player and why? Say that, sorry, say that again. Who's, right. who's the best player in the NFL that people don't think of as a great player? Oh, that's a good question. Um, okay, so he plays for Green Bay. And I think he's been this good for a long time. I think Adrian Amos, the safety for Green Bay, is the best player that no one really talks about. Um, when I look at that team, you know, everybody asks, you know, underneath every single team that's like, hey, how are they this good? And we don't see it add up. There's always a player like Adrian Amos. And in Buffalo, it was Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde, right? And like a lot of times it's a safety, but I think in Green Bay, you know, you're, you're seeing the things stay together because of guys like Adrian Amos. Really good. Eric Eager, thanks so much for joining me. Have a great week and enjoy the games. Thanks for having me on, Peter. My thanks to Paul Burmeister and Eric Eager for their help with the podcast this week. Um, it's been a fascinating time in the NFL on and off the field. And I look forward to you coming back next week. Does any of us have any idea what's going to happen in week 14 or 13, whatever we're in? Uh, I certainly don't, but I look forward to sharing it with you next week. Thanks a lot for listening.